Let's open the word of God this evening to Genesis chapter 16. We will read the whole of the chapter. The text for this evening's sermon will be verses 7 through 13. I will not take the time to reread that entire section, only verse 13, so I ask that you pay close attention to those verses as we go through them. Let me note at the outset that at this point in the history, uh, it's still Sarai and Abram, and almost certainly during the course of the sermon, I will refer to them at times as Sarah and Abraham. You know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to make a point of always trying to get it right. Let's begin reading at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing I pray thee, go in unto my maid, it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself unto her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi, because it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. 
And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. We end our scripture reading at that point. The text is verses 7 through 13. Let's reread only verse 13. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Monday, a woman, a woman steps into her home and immediately crumples to the ground, for the doctor had used that dreaded word, cancer. And now with tears pouring down her face, she looks up to heaven and says, why would you let this happen to me? Tuesday. Mother spends her entire day cooking meals, cleaning up messes, and correcting her children. And knowing that she will do the very same thing the next day and then the next day after that, she wonders in her heart whether her life makes any real difference to her Creator and her Redeemer. Wednesday, a child sits alone on the playground at recess and under his breath whispers, Why, God, have you not given me any friends? Thursday, husband and wife crawl into bed, their backs toward each other, ample distance between them. They had yelled at each other again, and now lying upon their bed, they each wondered, God, where are you? Friday, single member of the church drives home, steps into his empty apartment, and concludes that if he were just to vanish over the weekend, within six months no one would give him a moment's remembrance. Saturday. An aged saint spends yet another day alone, left wondering, what purpose do I have in life anymore? And why has he not simply taken me home to heaven? And Sunday, a member of the church walks into the sanctuary, sits down in the pew, and prays for grace to focus on worshiping God 
because her heart is completely and utterly overwhelmed on account of the burden that she carried with her into the sanctuary. As a pastor, I know these people. But as a congregation, so do you. Because we are these people. And whether or not our trial and affliction aligns with any one of the seven examples that we just gave, or whether it's entirely different, each one of us knows what it is to live in this fallen world where we experience the manifold effects of sin and God's curse upon this creation. We know what it is to suffer. And in the midst of that suffering, we are often left wondering, does God see me? Does God hear me? Does God care about me? The purpose of tonight's sermon is to address that very question. For tonight we will look at the history of God's dealings with Hagar, this runaway slave, but a daughter of the Most High. And we look at the history, which is to say, we are not interested in the allegorical interpretation of this history that's found in Galatians chapter 4, but we're interested in God's own dealings with His daughter of His own. And we look at this history to be reminded of the truth that our God does see us. He does hear us, and He does care about us because our God is El Ra'i, the God who sees me. That was Hagar's confession in light of God's great compassion upon her, and it's that very truth that we consider tonight for the sake of our own comfort and consolation. So tonight, let's consider Genesis chapter six, verses 16, verses 7 through 13, using as our theme, Hagar, seen by the Lord. First, we will look at the compassion on Hagar. Second, the confession of Hagar. And third, the comfort for Hagar's. And there should be an S at the end of that. It's plural because we are the Hagar's. First, we begin with God's compassion on Hagar. Picture her for a moment. Pregnant, exhausted, angry, frightened, and alone. That was her condition when God came to her and showed such compassion upon her. But before we can get to God's dealings with this woman, we first have to back up and remind ourselves, who is this woman and how did she get to this place? 
Well, Hagar, as I trust you remember from your own knowledge of the Bible, was Sarai's handmaid from Egypt. That's what we're taught in verse 1. And Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had an handmaid, that is a female servant, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. It mentions that she's an Egyptian, and this reminds us of the history previously recorded in chapter 12, the first time that Abram and Sarai went down into the land of Egypt on account of some famine, where Abram has Sarai lie about her relationship to her husband. And it was there that because of her beauty, Abram and Sarah were treated very well, so that we read in chapter 12, verse 16, that Pharaoh entreated Abram well for her sake, that is Sarai's sake, and he had sheep and oxen and asses and men servants and ah, maidservants. So that we recognize that almost certainly Hagar is one of those female servants that was given to Abram during his time of sojourning in the land of Egypt. But now they've come back up out of the land of Egypt and Hagar's been brought with Abram and Sarah and she's really been brought into the covenant community. She's been delivered from living in the darkness of the land of Egypt and brought into the church of that day. She's been brought into the family of Abram and Scripture tells us that Abram was faithful in instructing his entire household in the truths of who God was and what he had done for his people so that Hagar would now have come to know Jehovah as God. But now at this point in the history, she's pregnant. That's the beginning of verse 4. And he went in unto Hagar and she conceived. And standing behind this history is the fact that God, when he called Abram to sojourn in the land of Canaan, had made to Abram many wonderful promises that he would have, his descendants would become a great nation and they would inherit the land. But that promise depended on Abram, first of all, having a son. And though they have now been in the land for 10 years, according to this chapter, he's now 85 years old, they have yet to have a son. And in the weakness of their faith, having waited 10 years, they thought they would try to help God's promise along. So that they come up with a plan that's mentioned in verse 2. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And now for Abram to do this certainly would have been in harmony with the practices, the customs of that time and of the nations around Abram. But this was not at all in harmony with God's revealed will. This was sin. And this betrayed their lack of faith in God's promises. But though it was sinful, Abraham nevertheless went in unto her, and she conceived so that Hagar is now pregnant. But as you would expect, this led to trouble. There was great trouble in the home. There was sin. This was the occasion for 
Hagar's own sin against Sarai. That's what's recorded at the end of verse 4. And when she, Hagar, saw that she, Hagar, had conceived, her mistress, Sarai, was despised in her eyes, in Hagar's eyes. And what's telling us is that Hagar began to dishonor Sarai. She developed a low view of Sarai, and likely what this is telling us is that she proudly supposed that she would now have the, the place of preeminence in the home because she was the one who was able to produce a child. But that was sinful. But this sin led to more sin. It became the occasion for Sarai's sin. And that's what we read about in the subsequent verses. Sarai goes and complains to Abram about how She's being dishonored by Hagar. And Abram tells her, you may do with her as you please. Verse 6, but Abram said unto Sarai, behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And then we read this, that Sarai dealt hardly with her. She afflicted her. She oppressed Hagar. And this was sin on her part. There was much trouble in the home. And very briefly, there's a lesson for us in that. Congregation sin makes a mess of things. Sin does not bring peace. It does not bring happiness. It does not bring joy. It brings trouble. And it was from that trouble that Hagar fled. The end of verse 6. When Sarai dealt hardly with her, she, Hagar, fled from her face. So that in verse 7, we find her by a fountain of water in the wilderness by the fountain that is the well in the way of Shur. And we must understand that for her to go out into the wilderness to this well along the road to Shur is an attempt for her to run away. Hagar is not stepping out for a moment to try to cool off. She's not trying to take a couple week vacation and then thinking she'll return back, but she's running away. She's forsaking entirely the tents of Abram and Sarai. Likely that's why she's standing alongside of a road. She's hoping that someone will come by and enable her to get further and further away. But this was foolish on her part. And it's so foolish because she's leaving the church of that day, really. She's turning her back on the covenant community that God had brought her into. But at this point, none of that mattered. What was on the forefront of Hagar's mind was her affliction, the way that she had been treated, her misery. And it was that misery that led her to flee so that she's now sitting by this well alongside of a road in the wilderness. So do you see her there? Pregnant. Tired. Angry. 
frightened and alone. And no doubt consumed with the thought, nobody sees me. Nobody hears me. And nobody cares. Child of God, can you identify with her? Have you ever been alone in the wilderness? If so, or perhaps I should say insofar as that's true for each one of us, then let what happens next thrill your soul, child of God. Because what happens next is that we see the compassion of our Savior for this runaway slave. The Lord Himself comes and speaks to her. And that's what we read in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of Shur. And we must understand that this angel of the Lord is Jehovah. This is God Himself coming to her. And that's evident from Hagar's confession in verse 13. After the events that transpire, she will say in verse 13, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, that is the angel of the Lord that had been talking to her, Thou God seest me. She had just been speaking to God Himself so that we understand that this angel of the Lord is not simply an angel sent by God, coming from God's presence, but this is God Himself coming to her in the form of a man. And specifically, this is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity coming to Hagar. Because within the Trinity, among the three persons, if there is one person who is going to come down into this world in the form of a man to appear to one of his daughters, it's going to be the Son. Because that's what's going to happen in the fullness of time. And Jesus Christ was born of a woman. So that what we have here is what we call one of the pre-incarnate manifestations of Jesus Christ. Pre, before Incarnate, that is, before the incarnation, before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in that manger, there were times in the Old Testament that he would appear in the form of a man. When he's born of the Virgin Mary, he, was not, he did not simply appear in the form of a man, but he really assumed to himself our flesh and blood. He would clothe himself in our humanity. Here, he has not yet assumed our flesh and blood. He's simply appearing in the form of a man. But nevertheless, this is the Son of God. And if we have any doubts about whether this is the Son, we only need to look more closely at what follows. We need only look at his finding her and seeking her out. That's the language that we find in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her 
by a fountain of water. And is that not the work of our good shepherd? Yea, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's precisely what he's doing here. As the good shepherd, seeking after one of his wandering sheep, not resting until at last he finds her. And notice that he finds her by a fountain, by a well of water, which reminds us of the history recorded for us in John 4, where Jesus finds another woman by a fountain of water when he found that Samaritan woman by Jacob's well to bring to that woman salvation, to bring that woman to salvation. And that's precisely what he's doing here with Hagar. He finds her by a well of water, whether it's to bring her to salvation for the first time or whether it's to preserve her in that salvation he had already begun. Notice still more that he found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. Did not our Savior tell us That as the good shepherd, he was willing to leave the 99 behind to go out into the wilderness to find that one lost sheep. That's what he's doing here. She was in the wilderness. She had turned her back on the covenant community, the church of that day. And now he pursues after her out into the wilderness. He did not fail in his search, as indeed he never does. And it's when we look at this seeking, it's when we see this finding of Hagar that we recognize, yes, that's my shepherd. I recognize him beyond a a shadow of a doubt, The, the motions of this angel of the Lord makes it unmistakable, that's my Savior Jesus Christ. you still don't believe it on account of his seeking and finding her. Believe it on account of what he says to her, his speech. For he does indeed speak to this wandering sheep. And the first thing he does is he convicts her. It's verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou and whither wilt thou go? He begins by addressing her by name. And stating her position. Hagar. Sarai's maid. Making clear he needs no introduction. Making clear that he knew her identity well before he ever showed up there. Then he asks those two. Probing questions. Whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? Whence camest thou, Hagar? Do you not remember God's grace in bringing you up out of the land of Egypt and into the covenant community 
Hagar. Your hope lies in Abram's tents. And now you are flying away from that blessedness. Do you not see what you are giving up? Whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? Are you going to press on into the wilderness? To die of starvation or of thirst? Are you going to wait for a caravan to pick you up and bring you back down to Egypt where you'll be subject to some cruel master? Do you not see that the path you are starting down is the path that ends in destruction? Whither wilt thou go? Two questions designed to show her the utter folly of what she's doing to convict her of her sin. Then having convicted, second he commands, verse 9, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. He tells her to go back. Not by minimizing the difficulty. He he speaks of it as submission. He recognizes this is going to be hard for her. But yet this is what's best for her. Because as we noted, the pathway of sin does not lead to happiness, to joy, or to satisfaction. It only brings misery. It only brings trouble. So he commands her to return to the right path. But in commanding her to return, he also thoroughly comforts her with a promise. And that's verses 10 and 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and thou shalt bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Ishmael. Hagar, I have a blessing for you too. You are going to have a son. I will make a great nation of him. And I will give to him a land as well. He makes promises concerning her seed. To comfort her and encourage her to return so that she could return. Knowing that God had a plan for her and her posterity even as God had a plan for Abram and his posterity. It's when we hear this angel of the Lord speaking to Hagar that we recognize that's the voice of my good shepherd. I recognize him beyond a shadow of a doubt because that's how he speaks to me. He comes to me and he convicts me of my sin. Showing me how I've gone astray. And he then commands me. Here's how to live a life of thankful obedience on account of what I've done for you. And then to encourage us, he gives us all these comforting promises. So that I recognize this angel of the Lord as the Son of God, as my good shepherd. Because of his seeking out this woman, his finding her. Because of what he says to her, his speech toward her. But then finally, because of its heart. Because of his compassion upon this woman. 
And that compassion is so clear. From the end of verse 11. The end of verse 11. Because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Notice what it does not say. It does not say because the Lord hath heard thy cry. It does not say because the Lord hath heard thy prayer or thy supplication or thy request. But it says the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And it says that because evidently Hagar has not cried out unto the Lord. Whether it was because she never thought to do so or on account of the hardness of her heart, she's not asking God for help yet. But yet the Lord heard her anyway. Hagar, though you did not cry out, your affliction did. And God heard that. And what we see in this is the compassion of our Savior Jesus Christ. His pity for His people in the midst of their trials and their difficulties. This shows us our sympathetic Savior. The one whose heart is tenderly affected toward His children. And it's this compassion that that stands behind the action that we see. What led Him to seek her out? What led Him to speak to her? His compassion for her. And what grace we see in this. Because what is there in Hagar that would lead him to go out and find her in the wilderness? What could we possibly find in this angry, runaway servant as an explanation for why God would show such mercy toward her? There's nothing in her. This is divine grace. This is pure mercy. That's how our Savior dealt with this woman. When she ran away, He pursued after her. He spoke to her out of a heart of compassion. And what he's doing is he's restoring her soul. He's bringing her back to the paths of righteousness. So that there's a change that takes place in this woman. Whether this is her initial conversion or whether it's an act of grace to preserve her in her salvation. Either way. We see the work of our Good Shepherd in restoring her soul. In revealing Himself to her so that she would come to know Him more fully and more deeply and by His grace go back to serve Sarai. She would go back making a very beautiful confession about our God. We want to look at that confession as it's recorded for us in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. Thou 
that thou, God, seest me. For she said, have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Now, in coming to this confession, it's worth acknowledging that there is considerable debate about how to understand this confession. And there are really two different sides to the debate. There are those who say that this confession is an expression of amazement that God saw, looked upon Hagar in her affliction and in her trial. And that's certainly how the King James understands it. But there are those who say, no, that's not how we are to understand it. Instead, this is an expression of amazement that Hagar was allowed to see, to look upon God. And then to tell about it. And the reason for the debate is that the Hebrew is very difficult to understand. And that's true of the very name that is given that Hagar uses to speak of God. In our King James Bible we read this, and spake, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. Four words in our King James Bible, two words in the original Hebrew. And the two words in the original Hebrew, if we were to the two words in the original Hebrew is El Roy. E-L space R-O-I. In the Hebrew, it's pronounced El-Ra-I. In the English, we would say El-Roy. But there's debate about what does the, the Roy mean. The El, that's the name of God. And then Roy comes from a, a root that refers to seeing. But there's debate. Does that mean this is the God who saw Hagar? Or is this the God who allowed Himself to be seen? Uh, see, so that the idea is that God appeared to her. And what adds to the debate is that the second half of the verse is very difficult to translate. Our King James says this, for she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? And I'm not going to take the time. It would not be profitable for us to take the time to wade into all the grammatical things going on there. But again, it could be translated and understood both ways as referring to the fact that this God looked upon me, he saw me, or God allowed himself to be seen so that he appeared. In the end, there's no way for me to tell you what Hagar herself by these words. For though our seminary teaches us, requires that we know Biblical Hebrew, and we gain a level of proficiency with the original language. I am no Hebrew scholar. I'm not, I'm not able to make an authoritative judgment. This is what is being said here. But I'm not sure I need to either. Because are not both explanations entirely in harmony with the overall context? It really could go either way. It could very well be that when she says this God is El Ra'i, she has in mind because He saw me. So that this very well could be a confession of God's omniscience. 
The fact that God knows all things. That he sees everything. That nothing is hid from his eyes. Whether it takes place in the wilderness or whether it takes place in the middle of the city. Whether it takes place on the top of a mountain or out in the middle of the ocean. Our God sees and knows all things with a perfect and immediate knowledge. He's omniscient. But it's more than that. It's not just his general omniscience that would be in view. It's his special interest in the hearts and lives of his people. So that while yes, it's true. God sees and knows every single creature over the whole vast creation, whether they are big or whether they are small. Yes, it's true. God knows even the wicked. They're sitting down and they're standing up. He knows their thoughts afar off while those things are true. Our God has a special interest in the hearts and lives of His people. He is El Re'i. The God who sees me. Personally. He saw me in my affliction. He knew the inner turmoil taking place in my heart. And though I was not looking for Him, though I was not crying out to Him, yet He looked upon me and He heard my affliction. And He looked upon me not just in a general way, but with a look of tender care and loving concern. All of that is in perfect harmony with the history. And that may well be what Hagar meant when she says, this God is El Ra'i, the God who sees me. We could also go the other way. That this God is El Ra'i because He looked upon me. Which would include the fact that He sought Hagar out. She may well be saying, though I was alone by that well, though I had concluded, nobody sees me, nobody hears me, nobody cares about me. He came and sought me out. He found me when I least expected it. He showed up in the hour of my greatest need. And then He revealed Himself to me. He appeared in that sense. Though I was a runaway slave, though I had turned my back upon the covenant community, yet this God came and He, he let me see Him. He, he spoke to me. I could, I could hear His voice. So that I had the same privilege that my my master Abram had. This God had appeared to my master Abram. And he had spoken many rich and beautiful promises to Abram. And now he's done the very same for me. He's come to me and he's, he's spoken promises to me personally. 
in wonder of wonders, I'm still alive to tell about it. Because this God is a consuming fire. And I'm a wretched sinner. But yet I was not consumed. I was allowed to speak with Him. And go on living. All of that fits just as well with the history. So if we want to know what Hagar herself meant by these words, we will have to wait until we get to heaven to ask her herself personally. Until then, I leave it to you to decide which interpretation you prefer. For myself, I prefer the understanding that she is saying, Jehovah is our E because this God sees me. I believe the King, the King James Version gets it right. And therefore, that's the truth that I want to apply for our comfort and consolation in our third and final point this evening. We certainly need comfort. Because to one degree or another, we are all Hagars. To one degree or another, we can all identify with this woman as she sat down by that well of water in the wilderness. Because we all experience trials and afflictions. Each one of us knows what it is to suffer. There are times in the lives of each one of God's people that their lives feel truly miserable. And some of those afflictions are known generally broadly to others. Others are of a very private character. No one else knows about them. And what can make those trials and afflictions especially painful is when they come upon us as the consequences for our sin. And now that's certainly not true of all trials and afflictions. It was not true for Job and what he experienced. It was not true for the man born blind in John chapter 9. It was not on account of his sin or the sins of his parents that he endured what he did. There are many trials, many afflictions that are not directly connected to some sin. But sometimes they are. That was the case for Hagar. Yes, she was being oppressed. Yes, she was being afflicted. There's no minimizing the difficulty of her circumstances. But running away was the wrong response. It was foolish on her part. And she experienced what she did in the wilderness on account of her sin. That's how it goes for us. But now either way, whether our trials and afflictions are connected to some sin or whether they are not, we are all tempted to conclude nobody sees me. Nobody hears me. Nobody cares.
No one has any idea how hard my life is right now. No one has a clue what I have to put up, at, put up with day after day after day. And even if someone did know, I'm not sure they would care. And in fact, it's so bad. I'm beginning to wonder whether God himself cares. Whether he sees, whether he hears. Child of God, that's the devil. Who wants you to believe that. It's the devil who wants you to conclude that your God does not see, he does not hear, and he does not care, and that's a lie. It's not true. And this passage is the proof. Because our God is El Ra'i. The God who sees and hears. Monday through Sunday. When we are overwhelmed. When we are downcast. When our hearts are filled with confusion. Grief, sorrow, and shame. He never closes his eyes. He never turns and looks the other way. He's the God who sees it. And he looks upon us, not just with that look of his omniscience. It's not just the same look that he has for any and every other creature of this earth. But he looks upon us with a love and a, and a care that he has for his most valuable creatures. His blood-bought sheep. And he looks upon us in compassion with a heart that's filled with pity for his people. Child of God, his eyes are full of love and concern for you. It's true. Because he's El Ra'i. We must understand that's not just Hagar's special name for God. It's not just Hagar who gets to speak to God this way. But this is a name that God himself is revealing to us in this history. God wants us to know him by this name. And God wants us to believe this truth about him. That he's the God who sees and hears. He wants us to know that as surely as he numbers the hairs upon your head, as surely as he collects your tears in a bottle, he counts the fissures 
in your fragile heart. He weighs the bear, the burdens that you carry upon your shoulders. He tallies the number of minutes that you lie awake on your bed at night unable to sleep. He measures your grief, your sorrow. And He knows that pain that you've never told a soul about. And more than that, He's the God who comes and finds us. Who draws near to us in those trials and afflictions. When we are alone in the wilderness. He comes and sits with us in our suffering. He holds our trembling souls. Jesus Christ is not a faraway Savior. He's very near. And He's near to us by His Spirit and His Word. By His Spirit, the Spirit who's come to live within our hearts. Who has been there the entire time during the affliction. The Spirit that we had forgotten was there. Works in us and redirects our spiritual eyesight to look back to our Shepherd. He reminds us of our Savior. And He does that by His Word. God's own self-revelation, His self-disclosure of Himself to us. Through which word? He still speaks to us. He speaks to us a word to convict us of our sin. He speaks to us His commands to, to steer us in the right path. And He speaks to us all those comforting promises. By His word and by His spirit, He is with us. And that, in spite of our sinfulness, that's what makes this truth all the more amazing. Because on account of our sin, we give Him every reason to forsake us. On account of our sin, we deserve to have Him say to us, you want to run away from me? Fine! Go ahead! But that's not what he says. Never for even a moment does he entertain that thought. So that though we sin against him, he will not abandon us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. But instead, as our good shepherd, when we go astray, he's the one who pursues after us. Who seeks us out. Who finds us in the wilderness. Places us upon his own divine shoulders. And carries us all the way home. Do you see what a good and loving God we serve? He's altogether beautiful. Because his dealings here with Hagar. 
are representative of how he takes care of each one of his children. So take comfort in this truth. Find your consolation, congregation, in knowing God sees you. God hears you. And God cares about you. It's true. May the knowledge of that truth be what leads us to respond with praise and service. With praise. Even as Hagar praised God. That's what she's doing in verse 13. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. Thou God seest me. This is a doxology. A doxology. She is glorifying God on account of her. His tender care towards her. May the same be true of us. That we praise this God. That we extol him for his great faithfulness to us. Who are wandering sheep. And let us also serve him. Even as Hagar did. Because she did go back. That's what the Son of God commanded her to do. And by faith clinging to the promises that he made to her. She went back to serve Sarai. May God give us the grace to do the same. Tonight's sermon is no promise that you will have an easy life. Christ calls us to continue serving Him. Even in the midst of the pain and the difficulty. May the knowledge of His presence and of His care be the truth that gives us the strength be faithful in serving Him in the midst of all of the difficulties. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we marvel at Thy compassion for us. And we pray that Thou wilt comfort us with the truth that Thou art the God who sees us, who hears us, and who cares for us. And give us the grace to continue serving Thee no matter how difficult our life may be at this time. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.